a very brief introduction. We're looking in chapter 6 at lawsuits among the saints. And so we turn our attention back to what is most likely the most dysfunctional church that we could ever begin to imagine. Think about it, if you will. A church that is filled with worldly wisdom, human philosophy, as many as 50 identifiable Greek influences, all clamoring for attention and for the top of the list, people fighting amongst themselves about which ideology was truest, which one was making a difference, which one was meaningful, a church that is fighting about who the greatest and most influential leaders are. You had Paul and Apollos and Peter. Some commentators believe that they are a type that actually refers to many other leaders within the church at Corinth where there is an ongoing battle for supremacy, not by the leaders, but by those who are subjected to their authority. A church where incest, a man having his father's wife, it is tolerated And some believe even celebrated as something to be proud of in some sick and twisted way. That we've invented a new way to sin. Isn't that great? Come join us. (laughs) You can't even begin to imagine the thought process that someone would have in talking openly about something like that. And even celebrating it. It was a sin that the Greek pagans condemned in their own culture, and yet within the church at Corinth, it was tolerated and perhaps even approved of. So Paul continues to address the unbelievable actions that he finds within this professing community of believers in Corinth. And the principle that we've seen from the very beginning that continues to be proven through this letter is this. What we believe will determine what we do. It's just that simple. What you believe in your heart is going to dictate what you will do in your life. If, for example, you believe that adultery is okay, then you are going to seek out an extramarital relationship. If you believe that it's okay to steal something because it's not really that valuable, then you are likely going to take something that doesn't belong to you. What we believe is going to dictate and determine what we do. Now, since this church in Corinth has forsaken the teaching of Paul and the teaching of other respectable leaders, they've given themselves over to the truth of the day, the flavor of the month, if you will, and it is wreaking absolute havoc within the church. So today we look at the next presentation of dysfunction within the church, and that is lawsuits. Among the saints. Let's look at these 11 verses that define for us the passage of Scripture we'll focus on today. Does any one of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? If the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more matters of this life? So if you have law courts dealing with matters of this life, do you appoint them as judges who are of no account in the church? I say this to your shame. It is so that there is not among you one wise man 
who will be able to decide between his brethren. But brother goes to law with brother, and that before unbelievers. Actually then, it is already a defeat for you that you have lawsuits with one another. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? On the contrary, when you yourselves wrong and defraud, you do this even to your brethren. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of God. So as an introduction to this subject, it will help us to understand a little bit about the culture of the day. This was a culture that was absolutely fixated to a much greater degree today upon litigation than we are. Now, if you watch TV for any length of time, you are more than likely going to see an advertisement from some lawyer who is going to give you a rationale or a reason why you can sue just about anybody for just about anything. And if you do the smart thing, you'll call me because I'm going to fight for your rights. Isn't that, isn't that what it is? If it's not a Medicare commercial, it's a lawyer commercial telling you that you have rights that need to be defended. I did some investigation, and I was kind of curious about this. I heard a statistic years ago, but I never really vetted it out. According to the good people of Google, there are more lawyers in America than there are doctors. In fact, there are 1.3 million lawyers in America today, one for every 200 people. So we are a very litigious society, and many people are just itching to have a lawsuit. Why? Because I'm going to get something out of that lawsuit. Well, in Corinth, it was probably worse than it is in our society today. In fact, scholars would tell us that the city of Corinth, which was under Greek influence, was very much like Athens, which was also an incredibly, incredibly litigious culture. So in Athens, probably in the same way in Corinth, and it had become a form of challenge and even a form of entertainment. Because of how involved this is, I'm choosing to read this to you so as to not butcher it up and not give you the full picture. So this is a, a direct quote. One ancient writer claimed that in a manner of speaking, every Athenian was a lawyer. When a problem arose between two parties that they could not settle between themselves, the first recourse was private arbitration. Each party was assigned a disinterested private citizen as an arbitrator, and the two arbitrators, along with the neutral third person, would attempt to resolve the problem. If they failed, the case was turned over to a court of 40 who assigned a public arbitrator to each party. Interestingly, every citizen had to serve as a public arbitrator during the 60th year of his life. And if public arbitration failed, the case went to a jury court composed of from several hundred to several thousand jurors. Every citizen over 30 years of age 
was subject to serving as a juror, either as a party to a lawsuit, as an arbitrator, or as a jury, juror, most citizens regularly were involved in legal proceedings of one sort uh, or another. I don't know how you did anything if this was how the culture took care of disputes in the great city of Athens and how that would have infiltrated the surrounding areas, probably much like it had in the city of Corinth. Well, for a believing community, this new life in Christ that they were so clearly taught by the Apostle Paul has not, a, has not affected their behavior much at all. And we see another example of where they acted just like the unbelieving pagans who lived around them. We'll look at this passage of Scripture in four major points of outline. The first one is this, and that is the problem. The problem is identified very quickly in verse 1. Does any one of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? The problem is simply unnecessary litigation. Now, I've had disputes in my life. But I've never got to the end of that dispute where I uttered the infamous words, I'll see you in court. (laughs) But it happens, right? Imagine hearing that take place, apparently with some regularity, within the church. Well, you did this, or you said that, or we went into business, or we had some kind of an agreement, and you backed out, and we can't work it out, so my brother my sister... I will see you in court, and we're going to settle it there. So this litigious nature was ingrained in them through their culture, and they apparently had an incredibly difficult time separating themselves from this practice. Now, there's several important elements to understanding what gets laid out to us here in verse 1, and then gets expanded upon throughout the remaining verses in this passage. So there is a conflict between two people, both of whom are Christians, both of whom are professing Christians, and based upon the passage as a whole, this is not a criminal case where somebody was stabbed or choked out or killed in some way. It's likely not a criminal case. It's probably civil, and it's likely related to legal possession, breach of contract, damages, or perhaps even fraud. Now, there's several clues throughout the passage that gives us this indication that it is not a serious criminal offense, but it is just a common dispute that cannot be resolved, and it finds itself being settled in a court. So here's several of these clues that I pulled out based upon my time of study. There's, there's a Five of these that we're going to see in verse 1, the usage of the word neighbor. Now, in and of itself, neighbor does not identify precisely that this is amongst the believing community and that it is amongst the brethren. But the neighbor, neighbor, who is your neighbor? And Jesus expanded upon that with the Good Samaritan. And you are to love your neighbor as yourself, etc., etc. So it seems to indicate on face value that it probably relates to the believing community, but by itself it wouldn't lend us to that conclusion. Second clue is in verse 2. It's the usage of smallest law courts 
indicating that it was not a serious offense. I forget what it's called here. Uh, is it common court? Is that the lowest court that we have here in our culture? It's, it's basically like Judge Wapner in the People's Court. It's not really serious, but there's a dispute and it's got to get resolved in some kind of a legal setting. So that's one indication that it's not a serious offense. It's somewhat trivial. The third clue we see is in verse 3. Verse three the reference to things in this life hinting that it is a simple dispute as opposed to something very serious or perhaps even something criminal. Fourthly, in verse 5, this reference to deciding between the brethren, which indicates very clearly that it is amongst the believing community. Fifthly, in verses 7 and 8, there's the reference of being wronged or defrauded, hinting that it relates to property, possession, or fraudulent actions, which are the kind of disputes that most commonly filled the lower courts in our day and also in the day in Corinth. So collectively, they create a much clearer picture of Christians suing one another over simple disputes because they were unwilling or because they just couldn't come to any kind of an agreeable resolution to whatever the dispute was about. So since most civil disputes involve money or possessions, it's likely that greed is the driving factor in these lawsuits. Greed is always a problem in the Bible. It is the love of money that is, that is the root of all kinds of evil. Money in and of itself is not evil. So I'll give you a very simple example. If you have some damage done to your property, and you don't know who is at fault, but you have an insurance claim, it's not uncommon for people to find some things to add to that claim. Why? Because I can get a little bit more. And so that's very common for us, is to introduce greed into a dispute where there's some kind of money or possession or something else involved where we might get something out of it. And that will almost always tempt us into trying to manipulate or distort the action or the facts in order that we can get a little bit more. Note this important reality. There are going to be differences and there are going to be disputes amongst Christians. And when this is so, there is a proper and an improper way in how to handle it. So clearly the Corinthian church is handling it incorrectly. So the problem is that there is unnecessary litigation. There seems to be a refusal or an inability to come to some kind of an agreeable Resolution to the problem, it leads us now to the second point in our outline, and that is the contrast. There are three contrasts that are noted here in these verses that follow. Now, before I get into it, there is an allusion here as a part of this first contrast that the Bible is largely silent in or on. Paul is going to introduce eschatological discussion and times, what's going to happen and what are we going to do and how's it going to work. The Bible doesn't explain most of this with a great great degree of precision and it tends to create a lot of interest and a lot of speculation that just really 
isn't worth the energy or the effort. So the first contrast that we see here is the future with the present. Verse 2. Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? If the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? Do you not know that we will judge angels how much more matters of this life? So Paul makes a reference to something that happens during the end times. And there really isn't a lot of clarity anywhere in the Bible exactly what this means. Paul doesn't elaborate on it. Paul doesn't give a lot of detail to it. In fact, the vast majority of discussion about the end times we will find in the book of Revelation. Now, there are references in the Old Testament which apparently have some kind of a bridge into Revelation. But remember this, Paul and John, even though they were contemporaries of one another, it doesn't indicate anywhere in the Bible that they ever got together. When Paul went to Jerusalem to visit with the other apostles, he didn't meet John. He met James, the brother of Jesus, but not John. So it's not as if John and Paul were having these elaborate conversations about the end times. does not mean that God did not give to Paul some kind of vision that Paul chose not to write on. We don't really know. A lot of speculation. Paul doesn't give any detail. The, the book of Revelation was written long after Paul was, not, was dead, so he didn't read it. So there's a lot of questions, but the questions that we can't answer really are not the point. But let's look at it nonetheless. Believers judging the world and believers judging angels in God's future kingdom is a reference drawn from several verses or passages that provides some kind of a backdrop, backdrop to this idea, but it's very difficult to say with great precision exactly what this means or how this takes place. So what we find in these references are principles that we can say with some clarity, but a lot of detail that, that just isn't there for us. So the first passage that we would read is in Daniel chapter 7. Daniel has been given this very intricate vision, and God gives to him some kind of explanation of what this means. And so we see this reference here in Daniel chapter 7, verse 18, and then in 2021. But the saints of the highest one, saints being the holiest one, highest one being God, will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever for all ages to come. I kept looking, and that horn was waging war with the saints and overpowering them until the Ancient of Days, a reference to God, came and judgment was passed in favor of the saints of the Highest One. And the time arrived when the saints took possession of the kingdom. Now that's the principle. The principle is that during the end times, the saints will inherit the earth and we will rule in some form or fashion over the new heavens and the new earth. We don't know exactly what that's going to look like. We don't know how that's going to take place. But that's the principle, is that in the future, God's people will rule in some form or fashion. We don't really know exactly what that means. Jesus referenced the same passage 
and Matthew chapter 19. He said, speaking to the disciples, Truly I say to you, that you, have, that you who have followed me in the regeneration when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Jesus doesn't go into elaborate detail to explain exactly what that's going to look like and exactly what that judgment is going to entail and how long it's going to last and what it's going to mean. Just doesn't explain it. Paul also references this same principle in Ephesians chapter 2, and this is the most vague of the three that I've cited, and it's talking about the spiritual blessings that we've been given, and it says that, we have, that he has raised us up with him and seated us with him even in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So what we can say about future judgment of lost people is this. God will judge the lost, not believers. In some form or fashion, believers will have some kind of judgment, some kind of rule in the future kingdom, but we don't really know with any precision what that means. Here's the principle. Because of our union with Christ, we will somehow and in some way rule and reign with Him. And Paul infers that through our union with Him, we will share in the judgment of unbelievers and of angels, although there isn't any detail into exactly what that's going to look like or how we're going to do that. Now, since there isn't any detail provided in the Bible, at best what we can do is speculate as to what this means. And this is what so many people have devoted their life to, is they want to speculate on the things that aren't abundantly clear. And I'll tell you, when we do that, if we're not careful, we can create a doctrine based upon speculation that can't be fully vetted out through the clear teaching of Scripture. So here is the interpretive principle that every reputable scholar will tell you. The vague has to be interpreted through the clear. Where the clear teaching is clear, it has to supersede that which isn't clear. Oh, but I want to know. Why do you think so many people throughout the generations have said, Jesus is going to come back on such and such a date? And every single one of them have been wrong. What did Jesus say? No man knows. Only the Father knows. It is not for man to know. All you need to know is this. I will come like a thief in the night and you better be ready. Now, when do you know that the robber is going to come to your house? Does he announce it? Does he send you a letter, an email, text message or something? If you know the robber's coming, what are you going to do? Oh, you're going to be ready. Right? If you've got... Guns, you're going to be ready. If you've got weaponry, you're going to be ready. You might call your posse, but you're going to be ready if you know. Well, we don't know. And so people try to piece together unclear verses or speculation on verses, and they weave it together and say, this is what I think is going to happen, and this is what... And it's just there's just there's no clarity to it. So we have to be very, very careful. So, Paul's point is this. 
if we will, in God's future kingdom, exercise some kind of rule over people and things, because of our union with Christ, the future, and this is what we're going to do in the future, why can't we rule over the disputes amongst ourselves today? That's the point. The point isn't to get caught up and what are we going to do and how long will we do it and who am I going to do it over and what will it look like, blah, blah. That's not the point. The point is this. If God is going to give us some uncertain rulership in the future kingdom that's delegated to us, why can't we settle disputes amongst ourselves today? The contrast between their future role and their present dispute and ruling over those is very dramatic. They cannot do now what they will one day do in God's kingdom. Now, that seems like it's, what? How could you not do that? I, I think it, all, it just popped in my head. It almost um, brings about the principle, you know, those who are faithful on little things will be given much. Isn't that right? And here is what Jesus is, or what Paul is exposing to them, is that you can't do the little now. How how can you do the big? You're supposed to be able to do the big, but you can't do the little now. So that's a big problem. That's part of the contrast that Paul is pointing out to them. Now, the second contrast we see here is spiritual principles and the unbeliever. Now, verse 4. So if you have law courts... Dealing with matters of this life, do you appoint them as judges who are of no account in the church? Now, excuse me, every commentator I read agrees that in the Greek, this is an incredibly challenging verse to translate. Depends on where you put the subject and where you put the verb and how all that works itself out together. But here's the here's the contrast: is that when Christians deal with excuse me, when Christians deal with problems that they have with other Christians, the expectation is that we are going to apply spiritual principles in resolving the dispute. Isn't that what Christians are supposed to do? When there's a problem, when there's a dispute, when there's a difference, the very first thing that we should say is this. What does God's Word say? Let's look at the Word. Let's find the principles. Let's apply them to the problem. And let's come up with a solution to this dispute that we have amongst ourselves. So the question is, how are Christians to deal with one another? Well, the thing that occurred to me as I was thinking through this is very simply this. You've heard of the one another's, haven't you? The one another verses in the Bible there are over a hundred, or I think there's close to a hundred, one another verses in the Bible. And if you take that and apply the negative to it, do not blank with one another, do not to one another, etc., etc. There are over a hundred of these instructions with how Christians are to relate with one another. Here's a very, very basic sample. 
love one another, which occurs more than 16 times specifically. Be devoted to one another. Honor one another. Live in harmony with one another. Build up one another. Accept one another. Care for one another. Serve for one, serve one another. Bear one another's burdens. Forgive one another. Be patient with one another. So when we have a dispute amongst ourselves... These one another verses, these biblical principles, these Christian attitudes and actions are to dictate how we choose to resolve the dispute amongst us. That's what Christians are supposed to do. What unfortunately happens before anybody ever asks the question, what does God's word say about this? We immediately get offended. We get mad. We want to get revenge, and we begin to orchestrate a plan as to how you're going to get what's coming to you, and it comes to the ultimate, I'll see you in court. should never, ever happen between Christians. We have been given God's Word, which is to transform our minds and how we think. It is to affect how we feel so that we do what God says, not what we think is right, and not what we feel is right, but what God says is right. This is what is to dictate how we are to deal with these problems. Now, there are many, many other spiritual principles that will become a foundation or a guideline in how we are to relate to one another. And the unbelieving world knows nothing about these principles. Not the first thing. The very truths that make us radically different from the world, the world knows nothing about. Now, the phrase that we see here in this verse, of no account in the church, is not a scathing indictment against judges. It's not saying that there aren't any reputable or honest judges. It's nothing to do with that. What Paul is simply identifying is this. Those individuals who rule in the secular world have no standing within God's church because they aren't believers. They don't understand biblical principles. They can't apply biblical principles. And they can't come up with a godly resolution with a dispute or difference amongst Christians because that's an impossibility for them to do so, because they don't have any frame, they don't have any context, any framework for these biblical principles. So, when Christians have disputes with other Christians, they should seek to have other reputable, mature Christians help them find a resolution to the problem. It should never get to the ultimate threat of "I'll see you in court," and I'll ask that non-Christian who knows nothing about the salvation of Christ, knows nothing about the biblical principles that you and I allegedly hold dear to our lives, and we'll ask that person to resolve this dispute between us. Now, it's not noted in the Bible, but it is written throughout the rabbinic instruction and traditions that this was exactly what Jewish people did when there was a dispute within the Jewish community. They didn't go, in Jesus' day, to the Roman courts to settle anything. That would be an insult to the honor of God 
And it would be an embarrassment to the people of God to go outside of the believing community and ask someone to resolve a dispute within this group of people who associate together under the sovereignty of God. So, this is the example that Paul most likely draws upon. This was the example that was practiced in Jesus' day. And it's very probable that the Corinthian church and the Roman culture knew nothing about this because their first option was go to court. We can't agree. Let's get somebody else to agree. And that can't happen. So we'll go to the courts. And that's, that's exactly what they did. Now, the last contrast that we see here, the third one, is the lack of any spiritually wise This is the scathing indictment that Paul exposes as a contrast to this church. Now remember, all the way back in Romans 1, excuse me, in 1 Corinthians 1, where Paul laid before the believing community all of the things that they prided themselves in. You remember that? They were wise and they had all kinds of gift and speech. And so they were... They were people of the day. They were the Greek of the Greek. They were proud of themselves. They boasted in their knowledge and in their wisdom and in their status and in their standing. They considered themselves to be the who's who. So here's what Paul says in verse 5. I say this to your shame. Is it so... That there is not among you one wise man who will be able to decide between his brethren, verse 6, but brother goes to law with brother, and that before unbelievers. And so here's what Paul is saying. In your great church, all the great people that you're proud of and that you boast about, all of your knowledge and all of your wisdom and all of your oratory skills, there's not the first person in your church, that can settle the most trivial of disputes, and you find as your first course of action to go to court to have an unbeliever try to resolve the issue. Shame on you. Now, I don't know if you've ever read about this, but I read about this. I see this from time to time, and I haven't cut out the articles or saved them anywhere. But it is not uncommon... For Christians who have a spiritual difference that they can't find any resolution for, that will actually go to the courts and say, we got a problem, we disagree about this, we need you to resolve it. And almost exclusively, the, the courts will say, this is not a dispute for us to resolve. You guys need to go work this out for yourself. And that is exactly what we need to know, is that we have to work this out amongst ourselves. Now, I don't remember any two people within the same community of believers who were taking each other to court or suing each other over differences, but I do know of Christians who sue each other. I have heard of that. In fact, Sue has just gone through that, and this is a very fresh wound for her. And so when this happens, it's almost unthinkable. Wait, wait a minute, we're, we're brothers and sisters in Christ. 
you know, one faith, one hope, one baptism, one God, all that stuff, and you're going to sue me? You mean we can't even find a way to work this out? That's your default position? Is you're going to sue me? How dare you do such a thing? And this is exactly what Paul says, shame on you. Now, because the church was so divided, and what was, what was agreed upon as it related to truth and philosophy and wisdom, there was none among them who would be able to be entrusted to settle this dispute. So, for example, you say, well, I want, I want John to be a part of this guy. Not John. John's me pleasing those crazy people stuff. I don't want John. I want Mike. Mike. You know what Mike thinks? Mike's an idiot. I don't know why. What would you do? So they could never agree upon... Not you, Mike. You're Mike Ole, by the way. They could never agree on who was going to be an arbitrator. And so because of that, they had to go outside of the church to find a non-believer to help them come up with a reasonable resolution to whatever the problem was. Paul is ashamed of the church because of its inability to execute such a simple yet important function within the community of believers. Now, I will tell you this. That there are many, many Christians who will have a dispute with another Christian within the same body of believers. And they will make a big deal about it. And they won't go to the, to the courts with it. But what they'll do is they'll simply get up and they'll get in their car and they'll drive away and they'll never come back. I'm not going to sit down with you and talk about this with you. I'm not going to identify the way you offended me or whatever that might have been. I'm just going to simply take my stuff and I'm going to go home and you'll never have to deal with me again. You see, that's not really dealing with the problem, is it? Who amongst us has never been offended by another Christian that you've worshipped with? Far more often than you and I would recognize the sad reality, it doesn't take a lot for us to get offended. And when we are offended, there is a proper and an improper way to deal with it. In this extreme example, their way of dealing with it was just suing one another and going to court. So in the absence of absolute truth in the church at Corinth, and in the absence of known biblical principles, this church was no different from the people who knew nothing about the person or the work of Christ. Remember, the Corinthian Christians consider themselves the wisest of the wise and superior to others in virtually every way. And yet they couldn't get along with one another. They couldn't settle trivial disputes. disputes. They simply decided to go to court. Okay, so with the lack of the spiritually wise, we come to the third point in our outline, and that is the real result when Christians sue one another. Verse 7a, actually then, it is already a defeat for you that you have lawsuits with one another. The reality is this, when two Christians sue, when a Christian sues another Christian, both parties lose. 
When you say, I'm going to take you to court, what you're saying is, I'm going to get a judge, and he's going to decide who's right and who's wrong, who's going to win and who's going to lose. And what Paul tells them is the real result is this. If you're going to sue your brother, you have already lost. You both are losers. In any legal battle, there's going to be a winner and a loser. But in spiritual terms, both parties lose in the sight of God. Suing a fellow believer proves to ourselves, to others, and to God that we do not know how to properly conduct and control ourselves so that adults who know something about God's Word can't find resolution and therefore must go to the courts in order to settle their disputes. Lawsuits amongst believers prove what is truly known about the power, wisdom, and work of God. And that is absolutely nothing. You see, whenever we are at odds with someone else, it is the power of God, it is the wisdom of God, it is the work of God that brings resolution amongst the family of God. And if our default position is to leave and not deal with it, or to sue a believer, it means we know nothing about God's power, wisdom, or his work in our lives. So to be dominated by revenge or greed or power or any other vice shows how little regard we have for the truth of God's word and its transformation of our thinking and of our lives. So Paul continues in verse 7 and suggests the unthinkable. Look at what he says here. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? Now, I'll be honest with you. If someone cheats me out of some money, and they're a, they're a Christian, my default position is, well, that's okay. I mean, I'm sure it's just a misunderstanding. <laughs> Wait a minute. That's not, where, that's not where I start. Now, that might be where I can end. But my first response is, now, wait a minute, this isn't right. That's not fair. That's not us. That's not what we said. What happened? We, you're cheating me. And then it escalates from there. So Paul says, rather than taking your brother to court, why not be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? Rather than discrediting yourself and the God you profess to follow by going to a secular court, it would be better to just suffer the physical loss instead of trying to exert worldly influence over another believer. So this most specifically applies to the initiator of the lawsuit. If you are the recipient of the lawsuit, you do all you can to find some, some kind of remedy to this, but there may not be any remedy to it, and all you can do is just try to defend yourself as best you can. Now, there are instances where we're not talking about a trivial matter, we're talking about a significant matter, which is life-altering, and that probably needs to be considered a little bit differently. If I have a difference with my neighbor over where his fence line goes, I shouldn't say, well, you know, just do what you want. Just go ahead and take my house. I'll go find another place to live. 
I'm not going to do that, right? What's that, eminent domain? Is that what they call that? Yeah, so eminent domain means if you're in someone's property for 30 days in some states, longer periods for others, it becomes yours. You, you possess it. Even though it's never been bought or sold to you, you possess it. So anyway, off track there. So to lose materially is better than to lose spiritually. And to lose spiritually in this example is to do a serious wrong to a fellow believer. This is what Paul says. When you bring suit against your brother, you wrong or defraud your brother. Verse 8. On the contrary, you yourselves wrong and defraud. You do this even to your brethren. So to take your brother to court is to wrong him and to defraud him because you're not really working on bringing resolution to the problem. You're just going to let unbelievers deal with the issue. So typically the one who initiates a lawsuit feels wronged and defrauded. And Paul flips the script and tells them that actually the opposite is true. You feel wronged and you're going to take your brother to court. Well, in fact, you have wronged and you have defrauded your brother. Well, that's not what I was trying to do. That's not what I thought I was doing, but that's exactly what they have done. So the section closes now in the fourth point of our outline with some incredibly surprising words, and this is Paul's rebuke. Verse 9a, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. The rebuke is very simply this, complete unrighteousness. The way you're acting, the way you're thinking, the way you're dealing with your brothers is filled with unrighteousness. The implication is very clear. Those that willingly take their brother to court are acting just like the unrighteous. Those who know Absolutely nothing of the salvation of Jesus Christ. Those outside of Christ will not inherit the kingdom of God. Isn't that right? Don't we all agree with that? Those who live an unrighteous life will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, wait a minute. You just said something different. Well, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Well, who are the unrighteous? Well, the unrighteous are those who have not received Christ... And we can profess one thing and do something different. So the best that you and I can determine is that those who live an unrighteous life probably are not going to inherit the kingdom of God. Now, we can't judge. We don't know their hearts. They might be saved and just be really young and immature. We don't really know. But Paul gives a very common list of lifestyles that indicate that these people know nothing of God's righteousness or exhibit a changed life after their profession of faith. Now, we're not going to go into great detail. They're pretty self-explanatory. So now remember, Paul's dealing with brothers who are suing one another, and he's made this incredibly harsh rebuke of a statement that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God, and then he lets loose. Verse 9b and 10. Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, wait a minute, Paul. Wait a minute. Time out. I'm just going to sue my brother. I'm not doing all this stuff. Paul says, 
completely unrighteous. Your lifestyle is filled with unrighteousness because you are thinking and acting exactly like the unbelieving community would. Paul is not saying that people who live like this will lose their salvation, but people who live like this know nothing of the salvation that he provides. You know, cheap grace, I think, became popular in the 60s and the 70s, where you can profess salvation in Christ, and you can just kind of live your life any way you like. You do what you want. Just put Jesus in your back pocket, you got your ticket punched to heaven, and you can just do as you please because you're saved. Well, it's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches us, the Bible teaches us that we are to be transformed into the image of His Son. We're going to look at this in just a second. So, it is an inconsistent lifestyle for those who profess to know Christ and turn around and sue their brothers and sisters and therefore exhibit the same kind of unrighteous characteristic as those mentioned in this list of vices. And to be lumped in with these vices should cause a serious concern for those who are guilty of this sin of suing their brother in a secular court of law. So to drive home the contrast between who they profess to be and who they act like, Paul uses the word but three times to remind these Corinthian Christians of their true identity. Paul says in this rebuke that you are completely unrighteous and there's a challenge to be who you truly are. We would do well to remember that. Be who we are true, be who we truly are. Verse 11, Paul says, and such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of God. So the first thing that Paul says here as a part of this rebuke and a reminder of be who you truly are, is that you have been washed from the stain of sin. You have been given a new life through the salvation that Christ has provided to you on the cross. Titus 3.5 says this, he saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, not because of any good work, but according to His mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. We have been washed. We have been made clean. We stand before Christ whiter than the snow. We have been freed from the consequence of sin. The second example that we have here, but you have been sanctified to a new lifestyle. No longer living like you used to live, but some of you were drunkards, revilers, covetous, adulterers, fornicators, homosexuals, etc., etc., etc. 
You have been sanctified to a new lifestyle. Here's what we read in 1 Peter 1.15. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all your behavior. Can you be holy as He is holy and sue your brother? Nope. Can't do it. It's a, it's a no-brainer for these other vices that Paul has listed and lumped the, the lawsuit realization in. But we are to be holy like He is holy in all our behavior. Thirdly, but you have been justified and made acceptable to God. You know, when you and I were born into this world, we were the apple of our mother's eye. Our grandparents oohed and odd. Another angel has been sent into our family. Well, you know, that's not true. We come into this world filled with sinful tendencies, filled with a sinful nature, and it only takes us about four or five months to begin to act out on that sinfulness. And then by the time we're two and three, we're grabbing things that don't belong to us and we're running through the house. And you catch us, catch us with, with food all over your face. I didn't eat that. I didn't do that. And then the kids begin to lie and they begin to steal. And it becomes very, very apparent that children are sinful from the very beginning, regardless of how angelic they appeared <laughs> at the moment of their birth. Romans 5.9 says this, Much more than having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him. It is only because of the justification that is ours through Christ that we can stand before God's judgment and be declared holy. All of this through our salvation given to us by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of God. We're not saved because of our granddaddy. We're not saved because of uh, the good works that we've committed. We're not saved because of the potential that we have. We're saved by the grace of God through our faith in the shed blood of Jesus. And is that that has radically changed our life. Living like those outside the kingdom of God is a problem. And Paul says it's completely unacceptable. It is indicative of an unrighteous lifestyle. You know, I I think if we're not careful, we can look at this incredibly obvious list of vices and we can say, I don't do that, I'm not that, I don't do that, I'm not that, I'm not that. Well, maybe that one a little bit, but not that one and not that one and that one. And we go, I'm pretty much it, aren't I? I'm a pretty good guy, I'm a pretty good gal. God ought to be pretty happy with who I am. (laughs) Be careful. That self-righteousness, that judgmental attitude will very likely be what enables us to do the unthinkable at some point in our life. Oh, by the grace of God, there go I. For whatever we can look at and see in our lives that makes us 
pleased or proud or satisfied with the progress we've made as a Christian can only be attributed to the goodness of God. Not because of you, not because of me. Only because of who he is. We're going to sing a very popular, famous hymn as a part of our closing. And I hope that it will drive home this reality is that even when you and I are not faithful to be who we are to be, doing what we are to do, our God is always faithful. He deals with us as the loving Father must, but He is always faithful. Would you pray with me? Father, it's so easy for us to get caught up in the change that we've been able to see in our lives, especially those who were saved from a pagan lifestyle. And it's easy to become self-righteous. It's easy to be smug. It's easy to become spiritually proud. But Father, I just pray that you would continually show us of what your desire is for us, that we would look like Christ more and more each day. God, I pray that we would never be satisfied with the presence of sin in our life that we would never allow them to be acceptable or insignificant or not worthy of being dealt with. I pray that we would be convicted and that we would repent and that we would be compelled to fight to be holy in all our behavior like the Holy One who has saved us. Father, we pray that you would work in our lives as only you can. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.